Hi there, welcome to Fantasy Focus Baseball. It's a beautiful Thursday morning, June 18th, 2020. He is Tristan H. Cockroft, the H standing for hopeful there is baseball in 2020. And by the way, folks, he has had a lot of coffee today. Kyle Sopp, produces and researches our fine show with adroit aplomb. I am Eric Carabell. They needed a host. They probably still do. Uh, don't forget that Sunday is Father's Day, by the way. I'll say that later in the show as well. On today's show and every Thursday until we have live baseball, it is movie day. So let's bring in our good pal and ESPN staff writer, June Lee, to discuss Moneyball. June, thanks as always for joining us in the Fantasy Focus Baseball. And as always, the first question is, are you a veteran of this movie who saw it a long, long time ago? Or was your maiden viewing 10 minutes before showtime? Uh, I ha- This is one of the movies that I have seen, and I would say that it's probably my favorite baseball movie. Really? Wow. So, wow. It's, or, or it's, it's at least in the top two. Uh, it, it's, it's in that discussion for me, uh, as, as a movie that at least means a lot to me personally. Let's hear why. Why does it mean? Well, so I, I understand liking the movie because I do like the movie. I like the quotes. I like some of the things. Tristan's going to hate on it later. But when you say personally, I wonder what that means. So what do you got? Well, I think it captures for me, like the time, the period of baseball that I grew up with. It, it captured this transitional period between, you know, this old school scouting mentality versus the analytics movement. And, you know, it was when I was watching this movie again this morning, um, it kind of struck me that it's almost an artifact of its time in, in, in a certain way, because so much of the movie is talking about how, you know, this analytics stuff is pushing the boundaries and, and now, you know, you know, at the beginning of the at the beginning of the movie, they kind of talk about how scouting had you know been this per- pervasive, dominant uh, mindset in terms of just how you approach building a baseball team. Uh, and so, when you look at the game today, it's completely flipped the other way around. And so, I think it's I think it's very interesting in that way. On top of all of that, having Brad Pitt play Billy Bean, I think, is awesome. His performance in this movie is uh, is excellent. Uh, and then you're just immortalizing all of these like random players from my my personal childhood. So. You know, I grew up a Red Sox fan. Kevin Euclid has mentioned this movie. Chad Bradford is in this movie. Uh, Ricardo Rincon is in this movie. There's so many weird, small characters of baseball uh, that I think are mentioned. The movie is written by Aaron Sorkin, uh, who I, you know, personally love as as just a screenwriter. You can tell with the dialogue in this movie that it is a Sorkin movie. It kind of has a similar cadence to The Social Network, and in a lot of ways, to compare it to another Sorkin movie, uh, and is also, I think. Um, has aged very, very well in that the, so- the social network has obviously kind of been illustrative of a lot of things happening in our country right now. And I think the Moneyball movie also has a lot of insight in just what has happened in baseball over the course of the last you know, 10, 15 years as we've seen this analytics movement uh, move into the sport. Uh, and so um, it's, it's a, for me personally, it's a combination of a lot of things. I also just think it's a really, really good movie in, in kind of capturing... Uh, the melancholy and the unfinished nature of a baseball season. Um, you know, there's not a happy ending to this movie. The A's get eliminated. That's very true to real life. Um, it, it sticks to kind of the reality in that way. Obviously, the movie deviates from reality in different ways as well. Uh, but I, I really think that this movie captures, at least for me, the essence of a baseball season, which is like you have all of this stuff building up over the course of the year. Uh, and then at the end of it, it's just over and you're kind of left there. And, you know, the, the scene, I really love the way that this movie ends because it doesn't end on a baseball note. It ends on the relationship between B- Billy Bean in the movie and his daughter. Uh, and, you know, hearing his daughter sing that song and the lyrics, it's so true to the moment. And just seeing Brad Pitt being Brad Pitt, you know, being one of the greatest actors of our generation, like seeing him tear up, like it just really hits for me on almost every single level from like a movie standpoint. (laughs) 
Oh, love that song. You're such a loser, Dad. Just enjoy the show. Uh, that still sticks with me. I, I love that you brought up that point, June. That that ending really does stick with me. Just the father daughter relationship. I, I I keep feeling like I want to characterize this movie as a father daughter movie because that's the the most underrated part. Sorkin was a, a great point there. Uh, I had so many thoughts of the same uh, after the Social Network. I'm, I was looking forward to this movie with intrigue. I saw it in the theaters. Um, I did enter it with a lot of uh, questions. Uh, very, and I set a very low bar entering it. So I was very pleasantly surprised. And in fact, I thought it was worlds beyond my expectations. Uh, it was a well-done movie. The writing is great. I've watched this, I believe, two or three times this year alone on the replay. And I enjoy it just as much each subsequent viewing, despite the fact I have some major criticisms of it. Um, but they faced a huge challenge here. Um, and when I entered watching this movie, I thought, how are they going to turn a book that was nine years old at that point, and we had already seen how the story played out. How are they going to depict that on the big screen? And to me, that was a substantial challenge. We already knew how this played out, and the book didn't really know how it played out. The A's were in the middle of a five-year run where they were 500 or worse. They were a terrible team at this point. It looked like Bean's strategy had failed at the time. So the fact that they were able to illustrate this in movie form that well, knowing what had happened subsequently, I thought they did a great job with that. And we should note the book is written by Michael Lewis called Moneyball, uh, calling The Art of Winning an Unfair Game. And some would note, June, that the A's never did make a World Series, still haven't, uh, in, in the last, I don't know, when's the last time the A's made a World Series? I guess uh, the Dave Stewart, McGuire, Canseco ones, right, in 90? 1990. Uh, so it's been a long time for that. Obviously, it is unfair that teams have less money than others. The Dodgers and Yankees can spend $230 million. And the Rays and A's and Pirates spend $30 million, or whatever it is, probably more like seventy-five. But do you think the book slash movie made inroads that actually changed baseball? Because that's active. That's something actionable. That's something interesting that most movies can't do. Well, I the thing that I thought um, kind of summed up – and obviously we this probably didn't happen in real life because the character of Peter Brand doesn't exist. You know, Jonah Hill's character is a composite character of Paul Day Podesta and, and a bunch of other front office people. But I thought that's, that scene at the end where he's showing the clip of the catcher who hit the home run and doesn't realize it, like that for me is the entire message of the movie, right? Like Billy B made this massive – he helped push this, push this massive cultural change within the sport – Got a lot of feedback uh, that was negative. You, you know, you saw that play out on the screen, obviously, and you and you saw that in real life too. Um, I thought that you know, I I completely agreed with Tristan that like when I went to see this movie in theaters in 2014 when it came out, I had very low expectations because I wasn't sure how they were going to make this into a movie, how they were going to make front office negotiations, the you know, the office life of the the boring side of baseball, make that into a movie. Um, I think Sorkin's dialogue, you know, obviously really kind of helps propel a lot of that. Um, but it's for, for me, there's obviously there's a lot of small nitty gritty things that you could kind of nitpick. Obviously, there's a lot of talk. There's been a lot of talk about the portrayal of Art Howe. Uh, but when you look when you look back at this movie, you look at the cast of this movie. That, you know, Chris Pratt was was uh, casted as Scott Hatterberg before he was uh, a movie star. This was before Jurassic World. And so at this point, he'd only been Andy Dwyer on Parks and Recreation. So it was kind of a little bit of an out there casting. Uh, and then, you know, I didn't realize that Robin Wright was in this movie. Uh, and then obviously you have Jonah Hill. And Jonah Hill, I think, is, is someone who, for my generation, you know, Superbad is kind of this iconic movie. And this was one of the first movies where he began to be taken seriously. And we've obviously seen, seen Jonah Hill take more serious roles since then. And he's also directed a movie since then. He's directed mid-90s. Uh, and so... 
And then obviously, you know, the legacy of Philip Seymour Hoffman. This is one of his final movies in the last couple of years of his life. And so on that level, I think it also really, really holds up because from a storytelling perspective, you know, you have kind of the big picture vantage point of everything, of how everything is played out and how you see the effect of Billy Bean on the front office, you know, Billy Bean and Moneyball in the front office culture in baseball today. But it also kind of holds its ground on a movie level where you see all these big stars. It holds up on a storytelling perspective. And uh, honestly, like I... I was kind of hit harder by the ending today than I thought I was going to. And I hadn't seen it in maybe three or four years. And I didn't remember that the movie ended that way. And so to, to hear the song, you know, play out at the end, it was just like, oh, wow, this movie really does hold up. It's a really rewatchable movie for a serious kind of Oscar oriented movie, I think. I think that's all fair. Moneyball from 2011. They they obviously took some poetic license in the movie. The Art Howe characters unfairly. <laughs> I mean, he was a nice guy. He didn't really have problems with what, what Billy Bean was doing. A lot of the stuff, uh, the scene with Hatterberg on New Year's Eve, that never happened. But it did give us our, my favorite quote of the movie. And I still think about it as a day when Hatterberg says something like, I've only played catcher. And Billy Bean looks at him. It's not that hard. Tell him, Ron Washington. And Washington, without a doubt, just right away says, it's incredibly hard. And yeah. we still use that quote today in lots of different areas of baseball. I mean, it's amazing that they thought that. And Hatterberg was a fine first baseman. It's interesting. That's kind of like, Tristan, something that the A's did that no teams would have thought about doing is taking a catcher who has plate discipline but can't play catcher anymore and making him into an above-average offensive player. Not, Not with a lot of power, but he got on base. And on base became a trend that teams realized was more important than batting your little shortstop second so he could bunt. So I would say it did change baseball, the book in some way, and the A's in some way, and then everybody realized that on-base percentage counts. Um, Tristan, your takeaway, uh, I I think it's a movie that holds up even uh, nine years later because now on-base percentage is critical. People realize that they should have realized it 50 years ago. So the foundation you're talking about with Hatterberg was that you can't teach judgment of the strike zone, the ability to draw walks, but you can teach a player to learn another position. That was the foundation by Moneyball, and that's why Hatterberg was tried at first base. The problem with the movie in terms of this is they try to compress a lot of these points into a, a very short period of time. And that's why they kind of gloss over some of the things that didn't really happen. I mean, Deepa Desta, Peter Brand. First of all, putting a fictional character is very awkward in a movie that's trying to play a true story, to put in a fake character. And I understand Dee Podesta did not want himself to be portrayed. He didn't want his likeness. He didn't want his name in the movie. So you had to come up with this Peter Brand, you know, compression of several different people. But he was hired in 99. He was not hired in 01 to 02 in the winter. To me, that's a pretty big misstep. You mentioned about how they characterize him poorly i mean he was an athletic manager he was not you know like big gut and everything and he was not kind of brash and you know difficult uh he had another year in his contract the contract wasn't even an issue in 2002 um the the trade of giambi on the same day as carlos pena in order for bean to aggravate art Howell, that didn't happen Giambi was traded that day and Payne was traded 44 days later. And that was after he'd been sent down to the minors. And it was because they needed somebody else. They needed Ted Lilly to help deepen their rotation a little bit. There, there are a lot of little points like that where they just kind of, you know, gloss them over or compress them into all of 2002. And I, I think in a way you have to enter watching this movie now as in its fiction. It's, it's Hollywood. It's, you know, 
it kind of happened, but it also really didn't. And if you enter it that way, you're going to appreciate it a lot more because it's it's not a, 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 a terribly accurate depiction. I would say that the main difference between like this being, you know, I, I think you make a lot of really good points there. I would say that it doesn't hold up from like a factual nonfiction standpoint when you look at the nitty gritty details. But when you look kind of at the big thematic points of the movie, I think that's where it ultimately holds up, which is why I think it works as a movie. It it does. The the other thing, if you read, I don't know, have either of you read a lot of the stories, the reaction pieces to it since? I've read some. I mean, I know what I've people are saying I've through some this morning, too. The, the, the thing about that is the feelings of other characters and what this movie did to them reputation-wise bothers me a little bit. Like we mentioned the Jerry, Jeremy Brown thing. Jeremy Brown got a lot of undue scrutiny for having been brought up in Moneyball and then in this movie – and I think that probably was hard on him. I mean, Art Howe, this movie obviously bothered him. Grady Fusen, where he gets fired by Bean, that didn't happen either. He left for another job with the Texas Rangers the winter beforehand. So that was kind of unfair. And then they had this reconciliation where he came back to the A's later. I don't know. There's a little of that that, that rubs me the wrong way. You know, it, it, I see everything you're saying, and I knew you were going to say it. But the, to me, this movie is like the rookie in that they took a lot of poetic license that they didn't probably need to for the movie. But I still enjoy it, and I still watch it whenever it shows up on TV. I can watch it halfway through. I can watch the ending. And, you know, I think these things work. It's not like they had Scott Hatterberg batting right-handed. I will never, <laughs> ever get over that, ever, for the rest of my life, how the most, yeah. one of the most important characters in a yeah. movie everybody but us loves was batting right-handed or left-handed when he should have. I just can't get over that. Um, that part there, you know what movie I'm talking about. Yeah, um, I do. <laughs> but, you know, whatever. And, and Billy Bean, by the way, was remarried during 2002, so he wasn't even a lonely divorcee. <laughs> but I do like the fact that they, they bring in emotions with his daughter because, again, they didn't need to do that. That's really not a part of what happened in 2002. So I think it's a good movie, artistically. Uh, I think Timelessness, it does stand the test of time. It holds up. And technically, as a baseball movie, yeah, Billy Koch is throwing strikes and Scott Hatterberg is hitting baseballs like normal major leaguers. They got in shape. They looked good. Chad Bradford was throwing almost underhand. It, it, it works for me, the baseball scenes and the flashbacks. And they had the right Royals in the field. That's Mike Sweeney. You know, not really, but it looks like Mike Sweeney. They have his number. So the baseball parts, they work for me as well. Um, it all kind of does work for me. I'm not as negative as you. I, I feel a positive vibe from the movie. I know what you're saying. It's There's some stuff. Art Howe, yes, that's a problem. But June likes it. I like it. So we're outvoting you. Um, I'm not. Uh, yeah, but, but <laughs> clear on this. I don't have a negative depiction of this movie. I did consider this as one of my top five baseball movies. It was just hard in the numbers game to get it there. Yeah. It's just that I like to look at this movie as a fictional movie, and I appreciate it a lot more for that. And I will tell you, I thought Jonah Hill, June, as you had said, he was exceptional. Of all of the, the, the ingredients to this movie where you, know, you put people up for Academy Awards, him getting an, a nomination for Best Supporting Actor, I thought was dead on. Yeah, that, that yeah absolutely. Yeah, I mean, one of the funniest parts about watching this movie for the first time was like, I remember one of the only movies I'd seen of Jonah Hill's was Superbad. You, you know, Jonah Hill in that movie is kind of, just, you know, he swears a lot. He's a brash, like, teenager. He's got this enormous afro. And so to see him, like, complete, basically be the complete opposite person in this movie compared to what he was in Superbad, uh, I think that by itself was, like, so fascinating and intriguing that, like, it, there's... The, 
you know, it's hard to separate the actors from from the characters to a certain degree when you're watching these movies, when you're dealing with really famous people. Uh, and so, like, I think this movie plays a lot of uh, interesting kind of roles in in a lot of people's careers. Like, this is this was one of the movies that I think really brought Brad Pitt back into the mainstream and critically acclaimed movies as well back in 2014. And so, and obviously, you know, he's he's won an Oscar since then with Quentin Tarantino. Uh, and so. This movie not only I think is uh, good in memorializing, at least in a, in a fictional way, uh, you know this this era of baseball and and kind of everything that that kickstarted it, but it's also I think holds up from a movie perspective, uh, and it is going to be one of those movies that I think really stands the test of time among the baseball movies. You know, it's not going to be like you know when you again when we think about a movie like The Sandlot, that's a movie I think that really appeals to people who watch it as kids, right? And then kind of ages out. This is a movie I think that's going to work, you know, when you, if I watch this like 30 years down the road, I think it'll, it'll hold up. Um, we do have a Twitter question that pertains to the movie. This is from Eric, not me. Would a Moneyball sequel featuring the Rays be a better story? Um, I don't think it would. I don't think you could do this today. Uh, what are your thoughts on this? I mean, I, just because the Rays don't spend money, does that mean anything? I, I don't really think so, because like at the end of the day, this is a story about Billy Bean. Like a, a big thematic element of of the story is, is Billy Bean, his relationship with his daughter, and the fact that he probably he has. They kind of hint at it, and they don't necessarily like directly address in the movie. But the 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 weird feeling he has towards scouts and how much they kind of propped him up when he was a high schooler versus when he was an adult and he realized like I don't want to be a baseball player like I wasn't scouted well I shouldn't have been the number one overall pick which is what he was trying to get out of the Peter Brand character where would you have drafted me and he says you know I would have taken you in the first round and when he actually pushes him he says you know the ninth round that's what Billy Bean wants and I felt like that kind of Billy Bean as a character is what drives this movie it's not the analytics it's not the stats it's Billy Bean's character arc in this movie that ultimately kind of makes this a satisfying movie and and that's junk i mean you can't you can't possibly ask peter brand what round would you have taken him first of all it happened a long which makes no sense it makes no sense he was like eight years old at the time he would not have known what round he would have taken him in that so that's poetic license as well if he had some sort of ridiculous spreadsheet system that would have nobody would have taken billy bean after round one he was clearly a first round pick and just because he failed in his, his his professional career as a player doesn't mean like he's like the movie tries to make you think that because he failed he should be looking at current players in a different way yeah it's 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 not good it's leaning heavily into the idea that he's done this total life transformation a different view of players and it's trying to take that to an exaggerated extreme and i mean he did that in the 90s that's that's one of the things that bugged me about this movie is that it's like he learns it overnight in the movie he learned it in the 90s that being said, uh, one of the biggest ironies coming out of just like Moneyball's, uh, you know, entrance into the pop culture lexicon is that, you know, we've seen all of these Wall Street stats and analytics guys kind of flood the baseball front offices over the course of the last 10 to 15 years. And I think that this movie also demonstrates like as much as we've seen all these Ivy League guys, these guys from prestigious colleges kind of run, start running baseball teams as a direct result of people like Billy Bean and Theo Epstein being successful in the early 2000s. Uh, this movie also, I think, has a, a level of character um, that I think is somewhat missing in the game today. You know, Billy Bean talks to the player. Uh, I think it was David Justice in the movie where he's like, I used to be a player. Like, I get it. I know how to talk to players. And I think that's also just from people that I talked to around the game, just given the Wall Street analytical kind of culture of the sport currently, 
uh, is kind of missing that that dynamic between the front office and the players. And I think it was partially why we've seen so much, you know, to circle it back to current events, why we've seen so much mis- mistrust between the players uh, and the owners because of kind of this mentality where owners and front officers are treating players a lot more like financial assets than they did, you know, 20 years ago. That's all fair stuff. Uh, and next Thursday, it'll be Eight Men Out, which is a very good movie as well, but obviously 80 years earlier than when this one took place. And um, based on the true story, just like this one is, um, it's uh, Tristan, let's get your trivia in here, and then we'll ask June some more questions. What do you got today? So one of the parts that did bother me about Moneyball is that there's not enough love given to the stars of the 2002 team, including the American League MVP and the Cy Young Award winners, the MVP being Miguel Tejada. One of the things he did that year was he batted at least 300, he hit 30 homers, and he had at least 110 RBI. So the 330-100 threshold from a shortstop is pretty extraordinary. It's been done four times this century. I'd like you to name the other three shortstops to do that. My goodness. While, while we're thinking about that, June, I'd like to ask you about a story that ran today at ESPN's MLB coverage. You talked to some players in the Korean League uh, including Dan Straley, uh, Preston Tucker, former major league players, about how things are going over there so far. And I found it very interesting. There is a tangible effect on not having fans to these players. Please discuss what you learned. Yeah, it was really interesting. Uh, you know, I was talking to my editor, Matt Marone, just kind of about you know, story ideas that we could come up with. And it was, it was, we were kind of thinking about, you know, what are, what is it, what, what must it be like for players right now to be playing games in an environment they haven't played in before? You know, it's very weird for these guys to walk out to stadiums that normally see 20 to 25,000 people and you're seeing a, a sea of empty seats and these games all matter. Uh, so it was one of the most interesting parts or one of the most interesting tidbits that, uh, Preston Tucker, uh, told me was that, when there's crowd noise, you kind of have a sense of the importance of a moment, right? If a, if a crowd is into a baseball game, you get a sense of the stakes of the moment. When you're walking up in a stadium full of no people, you have to really look at the scoreboard and figure out what you know what is the importance of this moment. And it was it was it was interesting to uh, to hear him say that uh, you know he sometimes it's easy to lose focus because you don't have that kind of external. Uh, source of of information. You know, the pitchers, Straley uh, and Casey Kelly, both mentioned that it's that they don't have the adrenaline rush as much because you know when someone strike when they strike someone out, they're not hearing the cheers and they're not kind of feeding back like the symbiotic energy that the fans and the players have. And so the thing that really struck me that all three of the players came to was just a different level of appreciation for fans and what their presence at games even brings, even if it's just like you know, a couple thousand people at like a Tampa Bay Rays game or a Miami Marlins game, uh, or even just, you know, a couple of hundred fans in a minor league game. The fact that all three players that I talked to were basically like, we took all of that for granted, even the smallest number of fans, because even the smallest number of fans give you some sort of energy. Having nobody there completely changes the dynamic of the sport in an interesting way. And so I'm very curious to see, like, as, as we see whether or not baseball comes back, when we see the NBA potentially start to come back, how the dynamic and the of the game kind of changes and how kind of players react to the fact that there is no, you know, something that all these players have taken for granted to a certain degree for their entire professional careers. Uh, the thousands of fans, people cheering, people screaming. What happens when they aren't there anymore? And I think that's a lesson that, well, we know, we don't really know the answer to yet because the you know cultural dynamics of playing in the Korean League is different from playing in Major League Baseball. Home field advantage is a big deal, Tristan. It's something we look at in fantasy. It's something that people look at in betting and gambling. 
And there's not going to be much home field advantage without fans, especially when, when you're playing in the Disney World bubble for the NBA or whatever baseball ends up doing. I think there will be games, even though it changes by the minute. So um, I think that'll be interesting. Anyway, check out June's fine article there. He does a great job. And I remember Dan Straley. I had him on my fantasy team, a sim team. And, you know, he's doing well in Korea. A lot of pitchers do well over there. Obviously, it's it's viewed as a step in between double A and triple A baseball for the people in this in this country here. So, you know, Dan Straley, he, he could win the Cy Young in Korea, come back here and still be like a fifth starter. But still, it's it's interesting. And I'm glad to see him doing well. And he's making money. Because right now, nobody in baseball. And he's playing baseball. He was just grateful yeah. for the fact that he's playing baseball right now. And, you know, obviously, given everything that's happened the last couple of weeks and months with Major League Baseball between the union and the league, he just, he was, he was just expressing a lot of gratitude for the fact that, like, he called me after a game was over, you know, and like that he had played a game that night. It's cool. It's, it's cool. And I, I, I can't say I'm waking up at 530 to watch the games, but I'm, I'm watching the highlights, paying attention a little bit. A team just had like a 20-game losing streak. Is that right? Yeah, the Hanwan Eagles just uh, wrapped up an 18-game losing streak. They My are goodness. like they're like a historically bad team right now in the KBO, and they're like a franchise who've had very little winning. They're only they're only like genuine accomplishment as a franchise from a professional standpoint is being the team that drafted Ryu. Hmm. Okay, and then he bolted. Uh, <laughs> Although so, he says he wants to retire in an Eagles uniform at the end of his career, so I assume that you don't mean Philadelphia Eagles. Um, yes. <laughs> so, as far as you know, and obviously paying attention to this as closely as you are, things are going well in Korea with the season. Nobody's testing positive, and they're going to go on with the season and the playoffs. Things are obviously different here, but are you enjoying the Korean season? I mean, is it fun? Yeah, I mean, I'm trying to watch as much of it as I can. I tend to, I tend to ca- uh, catch the replays in the middle of the day, keep it on in the background. Uh, it's, it's been encouraging the fact that nobody has tested positive there yet. Though obviously the big difference between Korea and the United States is the sheer scale, right? Like Korea is just a much, much smaller country. It's a lot, it's been a lot easier to contain the virus in that country. Uh, most of the outbreaks that happen in Seoul versus the other cities and kind of the smaller parts of smaller, smaller areas of, of Seoul from a population standpoint. So, you know, I'm very like the traveling situation is very different there compared to what it, what it would hypothetically be like for Major League Baseball. So, you know, obviously I want to see baseball back, but also, you know, we're, we're seeing lots of uh, positive numbers go up. Uh, we're seeing a lot more positives in, in, the, in the South right now. I'm just generally kind of cautious about the entire situation. Obviously, there needs to be an agreement in the first place, and we haven't even gone there yet. So. And Florida is doing their best to make sure nobody goes there at all for the next two months. <laughs> so good, good job, Florida. Um, Tristan, let's uh, re, uh, reissue the uh, trivia question here and see if we can answer that question. Bring back Kyle as well. Okay. So we had four shortstops this century who have batted at least 300 with 30 home runs and 100 RBI in a season. Four shortstops this century. One of them was Miguel Tejada, the AL MVP in 2002. He also did it in 2004. I'd like you to name the other three shortstops to do this. 330 and 100. Alex Rodriguez? Alex Rodriguez is correct. The uh, the obvious one, he did it in 2000, 2001, 2002, and then additionally in 96 and 98. I had three guesses. It was A-Rod, Tulo, and Hanley Ramirez were my other options just to put those on the board. I don't know if either of them are right. So Troy Tulowitzki did it in 2011. Yes. But, uh, yeah, Hanley is incorrect. Okay. I I have one of them. Um, You got the last one here. Oh, is that the last one? No. One more. 
Nomar did it. Nomar Garcipara did it. Right. That was, yeah. Nomar did do it in 1998. Oh, no. Now, I'll tell you, the ones who've done it all time, Ernie Banks did it twice in the 50s. Cal did it. Cal Ripken did it. Cal did it in 91. And beyond that, we have only one more player who ever did it. One other shortstop ever who did it. And I'll give you your hint if you'd like it. Uh, I like this. You should yeah. be drafting him in fantasy with interest. Oh, it's a current shortstop. <laughs> this is a ranked shortstop you'd like to roster in fantasy in 2020. We'd, like we'd like to roster him, so it's not Elvis Andrews from Barricades. I do not hate Elvis Andrews. I hate him in round five. I don't hate him overall. This guy, you might, you might like to draft this guy by round five. I'd say. I mean, I Lindor Bregman. Nope. Trevor Story. Nope. I mean, is it Machado? I was going to say Machado, but I wasn't sure if he'd come. Javier Baez. Nope. No, not bad. Wait, a current guy. This guy, guy just hit it last year. Oh my god. Baseball feels like it's so long. Marcus Semyon. No. Uh, not Marcus Semyon. Last year, a shortstop went 30, 100, and 300. Last year, the shortstop. Oh, Xander Bogarts. Correct, Xander Bogarts. He hit 30 <laughs> home runs? He, he hit 33? 33 homers, 117 RBI. He batted 309. Yeah, I knew that's wow. how they would get you guys. <laughs> he had a lot better year than I thought he did. Yeah, me too. Bogarts is one of the more underrated shortstops in baseball. As someone who saw him play almost every single day last year, he his fielding is questionable, and the, the fielding metrics aren't friendly to him. But from an offensive standpoint, that dude can rake, rake, rake. He, he was a little fortunate with the home runs. I don't think that's his true power number, but batting average, like this guy's a 300 hitter annually. Yeah, I just I, I, I don't think of him as a guy hitting 30 home runs a year, but I guess everybody last year had 30 home runs, yeah. so... <laughs> He's also a guy who came up with the reputation. People thought that he was going to be a, a big power hitter when he was coming up through the minor leagues. He didn't do that for like the first four or five years of his career. And as uh, he, he's someone who kind of changed his mentality last year to really start swinging for the fences. That was something that Alex Cora really pushed on him. And so I think that's I'm not sure if it's a permanent change because we obviously we, we haven't seen any baseball this year. Uh, but, you know, Bogarts has had the reputation of having this raw power, his batting practice sessions. He really demolishes baseballs. Uh, and uh, he's he's someone I think is, is a little bit under the radar in terms of the best offensive shortstops in the sport. Yeah, I mean, we don't rank him as a top five shortstop, do we? I mean, we have him going in like round it's four. A deep, it's a deep position. I don't think it's fair. Right, to it's an extremely deep here. position right now between Lindor. And I mean, uh, you know, I feel like 10 years ago, everyone was kind of clamoring about the lack of premier shortstops after the retirement of, you know, as Jeter was kind of aging out. And now we've suddenly had this massive influx uh, in the last, you know, five, five or well, six years. People forget back, back in 2002, there was the big four shortstops, Tejada, A-Rod, Nomar, Jeter, right? It was that the big four. Um, yep. That everybody looked at. And then there's the infamous, back. there's the infamous Sports Illustrated shoot with uh, I think Alex Gonzalez. Also, they all had their shirts off, right? Oh yeah. yes, A Rod had his shirt. It off looks like a ninety. It's like a nineties boy band photo, except <laughs> you know, baseball shortstops. Sure. Yeah, yeah, that I I recall that that was ugly. <laughs> oh boy, <laughs> which Alex Gonzalez was it? Yes, I do recall that. Um, <laughs> Anyway, that is all for uh, June Lee for today's show. Uh, we appreciate his time as always. And uh, what a mustache. I got to tell you, the best part of seeing you every Thursday on Squadcast 
is that mustache is coming in great. I love it. Don't ever shave it. I'm I, I'm in a man bun now, which doesn't look good. <laughs> but your mustache looks fantastic, and we will talk to you next Thursday for Eight Man Out. Don't get out on that mustache. Keep it. <laughs> thank, you, thank you, guys. I appreciate it. <laughs> See you guys. See you guys. All right, so June does a fantastic job, obviously, and uh, the movie, very good. I think Tristan does like it, even though he doesn't do. really sound like it. But. No, you know, it's so it's so hard to see that movie come out nine years after the book. They, the challenge they faced. It was a hard – yeah, they had to take poetic license in order to make it. Of course. I, I guess. I mean, it's the same as The Rookie. Like, it's like – I think the story stands up the overall. Rookie. They did a better job than The Rookie did. They did. It's just like, come on. Like, I know that did not happen. Okay, so why are you putting that in your movie? Because mm-hmm. most yeah. people don't care. Most people aren't like you and me. You know, we, most people don't have a baseball podcast. Would you? Anyway. Would you? Uh, if the movie about you, would you ask them not to use your likeness and name? So we have to come up with a uh, you know. <laughs> oh, absolutely not. I would no. I want. I want to be plastered I, all over. I want no part. <laughs> I think you know how I feel about attention. <laughs> Every time I had to go on television, I was like, uh, can we not do this again? <laughs> Fantasy yeah, Poker like, Baseball the movie. It would be like one of those early, you know, Friday morning things on a distant cable television network. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> be on True TV in the morning oh, after the geez. tournament, you know? <laughs> oh. uh, Kyle, I assume that somebody had said, texted a, or tweeted a question or two. What do we got today? Yeah, we've got a few here. David wants to keep with the Moneyball theme. He wants to know how many $1 players you typically leave an auction with and if that number would rise or fall in a shortened season. I have absolutely no idea. <laughs> and That's I don't good. know how I would. I, I People are going to view this as like, there's an argument going on in one of my leagues now. One very bitter, angry guy just wants no part of fantasy this year. Everybody else is like, sure, let's let's do it. Like, let's make it even better. I I, I don't know if I'm going to – I mean, I'm going to draft differently in that – and we've talked about this on myriad shows. I'm going to draft it differently in that Nate Pearson, Spencer Howard types should be in the majors now. I'm going to redo the rankings. And obviously some players are just not going to play at all. But in terms of $1 players, I can't tell you in any auction before the auction how many $1 players I'm going to get. It depends on the auction. Depends on the strategy. I might end up with a stars and scrubs approach. I might have a balanced approach. I might see a bunch of dollar players at the end that I really like that I'll just spend two or three for to make sure I get them. I don't think I change anything for this for a sixty game season. I don't think I'm changing. I don't think I'm going more on one dollar players. Are you? Well, I mean, in general, I would probably go for three, four, at worst, five $1 players on a team and never more than that. I think it's dangerous. The other thing, too, is that I rarely ever get dollar players through Eric. I'm sure you're the same. I'll often tell you I'll have eight $2 players on my team and zero $1 players just because I want to make sure I have a little control over who I get for those spots to fill out the roster. As for this year, I, I... Less likely, I think, to go for one dollar players. This depends. Is, we, well, depends. In, a, in a mixed league, Tristan, you could take a dollar player because free agency is going to be have lots of stuff. In an NRA only, how can you, know, you you take a risk on a dollar player that he doesn't bat that much or pitch that much? Yeah, I, I gotta bring up the elephant in the room. There's an elephant in the room. Yeah, I mean, we play the season. There's the COVID nineteen risk that a player could catch this and then. Be on the it could be a thirty dollar player just as much as a one dollar. Right, I, I think the danger of going with the risk reward with going um, going with a stars and scrubs strategy is that what if you happen to fall into 
guys who do miss time. It could just ruin your team right away, and you're not going to have the time in order to replace those players. I agree with you, Eric. There could be a frenzy on the free agent list in fantasy, but I think there's going to be a lot of variance. And in a year of a lot of variance, I might actually prefer to take your middle-of-the-road strategy. You'll go with the never paying more than 20 and paying at least eight on the low end. Yeah, I think in one of my auctions this spring, I didn't have any dollar players. I and like my cheapest ones were like three or four. Like I just I patterned my te- team such balance that I didn't have a star, but I didn't have anybody who was not going to play either. So it worked out. But who knows? And and that team now might be terrible for a sixty game season. That's the other thing. So every league's going to have to figure this out pretty soon. I mean, I assume an announcement's coming over the next week. I assume they will play a sixty game season and. I just – everybody has to be in agreement. And if somebody wants to sit out – one of the things that was brought up in my league, which I think is uh, is interesting, one of my leagues, is everybody keeps their current roster for 2021 and we redraft for just a 2020 60-game season. I kind of like that idea. That way your players that you have contracts on don't keep – you know, and add an extra year or add the $5 or whatever it is. But you could just – let's just – a 60-game sprint, redraft, and and you're done with those players at the end of the year and you keep your keepers for the next year. I kind of like that idea a little bit. The one thing I, I would make clear, and I have two leagues like this, I'm not paying the full freight on the entry fee. Yep. It's got to be like half or a third or something like that. A 60-game sprint is not a realistic season, way too much of a solo sample. It's going to be some crazy stuff. Everybody could have a total of 50, run, uh, 50 stolen bases, so one steal could you make you go from eighth to second place in the last day of the season. That's just not a realistic fantasy baseball season for me. So I don't want to put a lot of commitment into it either. But I would like to play. Mm-hmm. I agree with you. I, and I mean, I'm presuming you're describing the redraft for a year system we had mentioned on the show several weeks back. I think um, I've I've been in pretty frequent communication with my one of my big league commissioners, and I'm a league commissioner myself. We're looking at at starting the discussion point at slashing the entry by a third. I think it has to be at least that. And they're going to play a third of a season, then why? Starting point, and then if anybody provides friction in there, if it ends up being a year we play just for fun, then so be it. I, I, I mean, look, I just want to play a league this year. Yeah, I just want to have fun this year. I don't care about winning money or, you know, like if I end up winning labor or tout, I mean, are people even going to look at it as a legitimate win? Not that I care. I, I, I wouldn't. I wouldn't. How about that? I want to play next year, 2021, labor and tout. Even if I win this year, I, I want to win legitimately over a full six-month season. Yeah. Not saying this isn't legitimate, but two months is not six months. Well, I want you know, I, I wouldn't count it the same for myself. Yeah. But no asterisk. The, well, the thing with labor and tout wars is that they drafted already, and and exactly that decision is going to get a little bit hairy. I don't know how they're going to do it with teams that have already drafted and. Whatever I I want uh, two get two month seasons fine then six months next year and then I don't you know what I'm reading everything that's on Twitter and all the stories and all that I, fight all you want you're not making me sad or depressed if you don't come back I'll find something else to do I'll watch the NBA and NHL playoffs mm-hmm. but you know if you want to keep arguing MLB for two more years and then at the end of 2021 rip up your CBA and strike in 2022 I think you're making a mistake. I'll come back, but I'll find something else to do. I'm not going to be depressed about it. I'll tell you that now. All right, what else we got, Kyle? Last one here comes from Greg. He says you've both been strong in preferring a points league in the shortened season. Do you feel strongly about draft style, whether it's auction or snake, in this environment? 
I don't think it matters how you draft, but I do think points league over Roto will be more realistic because like, that's one of the things I'm, I'm concerned about is that like one save vaults you from eighth to second, just because it's only a two month season. That's the kind of stuff that we see in June. I don't even look at the standings normally in June until June, right, Tristan? So after like 60 games of a season, if I'm in eighth place in saves, I mean, I know whether I'm deserving of that spot. But after 60 games of a 2020 season, for fantasy purposes, it's going to be like a Years points over. league. Yeah, it's over. The points league is just going to be more realistic to me. So I, I think I'd rather do a points league. I'm not saying I won't do a roto league. I, my oldest league is a roto league. They're not going to change to a points. Somebody's talking about head-to-head. No, that's worse. You, you don't want to do four weeks of head-to-head and then a two-week playoff. That That's worse. So I, th- I think the most realistic situation would be um, – I, a, a points league. I also have another league, which the three sport league, which is going to have to stay head to head. Man, I don't know what we do there. I mean, I guess you do like five. I mean, the season's eight weeks. You're doing like six weeks and then only two teams make the playoffs. I guess you could do that. I just don't know how many playoff teams you can have in a head to head because I don't know. Yeah. It's just not enough time. Yeah. That's, but, I mean, the issues in a head to head league are, complex on both sides because if you allow a lot of teams in because it was a short year you don't have enough time to play it out yeah. and if you if you only have four playoff teams and do two weeks of playoffs then were you really fair to people in the regular season we're looking at it's 70 days and 60 games was that proposal we're talking about from uh that was tuesday i think it was tuesday evening they came up with it that's exactly 10 weeks you're getting 10 weeks of head-to-head play, which means to me you're, you're just playing out the year and whoever has the best win-loss record at the end is is what it is. And by the way, we we do have to consider the possibility that there's a second wave or that numbers increase and that there are more restrictions put in and that the season gets shortened. And if that's the case, what happened to basketball head-to-head leagues and hockey head-to-head leagues happens to baseball. And then how do you determine a league champion? They abruptly ended and um, the playoffs hadn't started in those leagues yet, in my leagues. But so they just crowned the regular season champion, which I'm fine with. I, but you know, that's, that's, that got hairy because you remember it got cut off midweek. So don't did, count that. We don't, we, in ESPN, we did not count that half week. I know, but there are people out there who will make you the case that those were games that counted in the season, so those should count. So you don't want to get into this debate. No, well, decide it all up front then. That's yeah. what every, every league should be deciding this all in July before they start playing. Roto. Roto-wise, um, we, we've talked a lot about the all-time retro drafts. The one thing I was curious about was throwing 81, 1981 or 1994 in there. So I could I never had a traditional Roto League in either year. They're, they're all points, any ones that I played in, in 94. I would like to see the variance in a rotisserie standings from a shortened season because I've never done it. Well, that would be interesting. Uh, I'm not sure if last night's has ended yet, but yeah, maybe they can do it the next time <laughs> and we can see yeah. <laughs> how that goes. Uh, yeah. Cheap shot theater. All right. Uh, we're done for today's show. Thank you so much for listening to fantasy focus baseball. We will be back on Monday. What will we discuss? Well, that's kind of up to the players and the union and the owners, I guess at this point, we'll, we'll find something to discuss. Don't forget this Sunday is father's day. Tristan, happy father's day to you. And um, happy father's day to you as well. All the fathers out there. Sunday night, by the way, on ESPN, it is the 2020 ESPYs. Should be very interesting this year. Everybody should be watching that. Every Sunday night on ESPN, there's something to watch, so check it out. All right, that's all for June Lee. Check out his fine work at ESPN's MLB coverage. Tristan Cockroft, he's writing as well, does a great job. Kyle Soppy is just awesome. 
I am Eric Carabell. Have an awesome weekend and safe.